Welcome to The Observatory. I'm Jessica Helfner. And I'm Michael Beirut. The Observatory is a podcast from Design Observer. On each episode, we talk about a few topics that are on our minds and in the air. This episode is sponsored by Mayo Clinic Transform 2016. Set for September 14th and 16th in Rochester, Minnesota, the three-day Transform Symposium brings together the world's brightest minds to tackle tough issues in health and healthcare. Join designers, innovators, and medical experts as they boldly envision a sustainable future for health. For more information and to register, visit transformconference.mayo.edu. So if you've ever gone to the grocery store or you eat things that someone brought home from the grocery store, you may have noticed a Nutrition Facts label. You probably know it's called Nutrition Facts because it's a big, bold heading. But the most important information, the size of servings, calories per serving, how many servings are in the package, that's in much smaller type. All in Helvetica. Nice, elegant Helvetica. Maybe so, but it's still easy to ignore that that three-ounce bag of gourmet potato chips has three servings of 150 calories each, or, if you do the math, that's 450 calories. The Food and Drug Administration recently announced its overhaul of the Nutrition Facts label that puts those figures in bigger boulders, still Helvetica, but it does the multiplication for you. Now, this is a pretty big deal, don't you think? This particular piece of graphic design is one of the most iconic and most, you know, epic pieces of information design ever created. It's almost 25 years old. It was done um, pro bono by a designer named Berkey Belser. And, uh, not trained designer. Not a trained self-trained, designer. Self-trained. Self-trained designer, designer right? Uh, yes. He, he actually had a specialty doing uh, work for law firms. And somehow along the way, he did another label that I think some of our American listeners will be familiar with, which is the thing that comes on like the side of big appliances that says energy saving uh, stuff. This uh, guy has a serious Wikipedia page. I know. It's great. I mean, you could it's read great. all about it. It's really wonderful that this, this is an important part of graphic design history. And I was really thrilled to see that. That that, uh, that he's got his own page. Yeah, Sorry, no. Andrew. So he was asked by um, the then head of the FDA, uh, David Kessler, to help design the Nutrition Facts label back in 92. Congress had mandated such a thing, but had not made any provision for its design. So he agreed to do it pro bono and came up with this hyper-elegant system that actually can accommodate everything from a tea bag to a ready-to-eat uh, Cherry's Jubilee. And it's uh, probably the most single reproduced piece of graphic design in human history, given that it appears on nearly every single edible thing you can buy at a grocery store here in the United States. There's a bigger story here, if I'm not mistaken, which is that many people and organizations have been concerned with the fidelity of information that is exhibited by these labels. It's been the big cause of Michelle Obama's tenure as first lady, and this must be a great coup for her to, before they leave office, have actually engendered this change. But when we had our taste conference back in the early spring, Michael, you may remember that Mark Bittman talked on our stage and has talked uh, on his own blog and elsewhere about his idea, which was really to invoke what I think is called a heuristic. In other words, a, a system by which other people know how to make decisions. In his case, the heuristic he was borrowing from was the red, green, yellow stoplight. Mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. internationally right, right. understood, doesn't require an understanding of language. Green says good. Red says stop. Yellow says it's up to you to make a decision. Proceed with caution. What I find fascinating, and this is this is a very fundamental issue, I think, in graphic design and in communication in general, is that um, Belsner's nutrition facts uh, label, it's objective. It's sort of the theory is the truth will set you free. And in fact, they've made it slightly more rhetorical uh, with this latest redesign. One of the things that was peculiar about it before was that they tended to underestimate uh, American consumption patterns. You know, I think that people who have a little bag of potato chips generally eat the whole thing, and they would say there's like two or three servings in it. So the whole thing seemed a little bit unlikely. This latest one now, the information is more complete. However, you know, it doesn't really tell you what to do. It doesn't say there's anything particularly bad about sodium or sugar or calories. It just sort of gives you those numbers. And so you're meant to actually draw conclusions from this information, and you're not prompted at all about the nature of the conclusions you're meant to draw. The stuff that Bittman had done is all about not just conveying the information, but actually saying, um, this is good, this is neutral, this is bad. Um, You know, green, yellow, red. In the United Kingdom, uh, the National Health Service came very close to approving something they called the traffic light rating system. The idea being that you don't have to read anything. You don't have to calculate numbers. You don't have to be good at math. Uh, you just look at these colors, and then I guess if you're interested, you, you pursue it a little further. But it didn't get approved. And Bittman's thing, obviously, as of now, has not been approved. Uh, all hail Helvetica. Uh, we're you on know. for another 20 years of this <laughs> stuff, maybe. Yeah, you know, it's funny. This whole idea about encouraging and discouraging people to do things through presenting them with information that's um, skewed different ways in terms of how overt or implicit the right or wrongness of any choice is, is really kind of interesting. I mean, it's sort of like traffic lights are unequivocal. It's like stop on red, go on green. But imagine that if you approached an intersection, there'd be some signs saying, uh, you know, here are your 12 options. If you see a car approaching from the left and it's 60 feet away and it appears to be going 30 miles an hour, you should stop. You know what I mean? If it, if it sort of was making you sort of like do the math in terms of like uh, relative uh, distance and speed for everything entering the intersection, then you were supposed to draw your own conclusion about whether you're supposed to go or stop. People would be smashing into each other all the time, I'd imagine. Instead, we have the simplicity of this, uh, you know, simple three-way choice. It's like when you go to the hospital and you see those smiley faces where you have to indicate how much pain you're in. Yeah. I mean, they're ridiculous in a way, but they're brilliant in another way because they, they fly in the face of translation. They are they're hieroglyphs. They are understandable by all. And I think there's something about the speed with which we navigate the world and, more importantly, navigate a world where English is not always going to be the lingua franca, that we start to read these things. I guess you could say that numbers are that too, and that maybe all of us should be better at doing our own calculations on nutrition labels. But much as I like Helvetica, I think there's, there's something, I, you know, I, I liked the idea of the traffic label because it is, it, it is so basic. Also, I, it occurs to me that um, modifying human behavior through the conveyance of information is one way to do it. And you can look at, for instance, the way that cigarettes are labeled with here in the United States, the different forms that the Surgeon General's warning has taken for decades now. Uh, in the UK and Europe, it's common for cigarette packages to be dominated by grotesque and explicit photographs Smoking of kills. 
of smoking kills and photographs of 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 cancer infected gums and mouths and you know i mean they do everything they can and and you know i just heard a report that smoking now is at an all-time low statistically in the united states it's like i think down to uh 15 percent and it has nothing at all to do with information that's printed on the packages or people making cost benefit or cost risk calculations about i enjoy doing this but it may give me cancer uh, but instead it's uh two things are named as the biggest reasons one is uh cigarette taxes which simply make it prohibitive to buy cigarettes for a lot of people and secondly the inconvenience imposed by no smoking bans that are almost everywhere now in american life and increasingly around the world and i don't think that people necessarily are kind of like thinking more clearly about the cause and effect between smoking cigarettes and getting lung cancer or other kinds of diseases. If you're a parent of a person with severe nut allergies, the first thing you care about is traces of nut oils, right? right. If you're a person who is very principled about the sourcing of your nutrition and your diet, you're going to care deeply about the percentage of genetically modified organisms in your food. Okay, he has this other category that he talks about that, that's kind of fun but he calls it foodness, right? It's a measure of how close a product comes to being real and unadulterated. The three most important things in his view were nutrition, foodness, and welfare. Welfare, which is, I think, mm. a compendium of many different things, the impact of a food's production on the welfare of other things. On, on it, This gets into questions of labor and animal welfare. It gets into questions of, of water preservation and the environment and land use. Uh, and so suddenly you get into this knee bones connected to the ankle bone problem. Yeah, well, one thing that Bittman and Pollan and others are very articulate about and which is inescapable is that the reason people eat what they eat and the reason they don't eat what they should eat is only partly due to their ability to read or and or be persuaded by things like labels. Um, it has a lot more to do with decisions that are made far away from where they uh, are in the grocery store aisle that has to do with how does the food get to them, how is it priced, what does it cost, what's made available uh, in what market and to whom, who benefits. So there's, you know, the, the huge, you know, uh, food industrial complex actually is more than anything else delivering things to people and to communities and to cities and to uh, uh, cultures that are, it's almost to a certain degree and, and depressingly perhaps preordained, but, uh, but I think it requires both a really long and kind of global view of the whole system and, you know, just people being more thoughtful and more informed about what it is they eat. And I think, um, I think the same, same is true with cigarettes or fastening your seatbelt or anything else, anything that has to do with, uh, safety that requires, uh, uh, decisions on the part of individuals, but actually those decisions are bent one way or another way depending on forces that in a way are more global or universal. I think it's a balance of those two things that actually affect, you know, the way things go, both personally and culturally. And now a word from our sponsor. Support for the Observatory and Design Observer comes from the Mayo Clinic Transform Conference 2016. Join Freakonomics co-author Stephen Dubner, the rapper Dessa, and Harvard Business Review contributor Roger Martin for this three-day symposium set for September 14th through 16th in Rochester, Minnesota. 
Transform brings together the world's brightest minds to tackle tough issues in health and healthcare. Transform is hosted by the Mayo Clinic Center for Innovation, a multidisciplinary team of designers, project managers, and innovation coordinators at the clinic. There are plenty of good ideas in healthcare, but overcoming the gravitational pull of the status quo, well, that's something else entirely. How do we make change possible? How do we address what people, providers, and communities really need to thrive in an ecosystem for health? Transform will address these tough questions and look beyond medicine to try and better understand health. For more information and to register, visit transformconference.mayo.edu. You know, uh, Jessica, the speaker list so far includes places you'd expect, like Mayo, Humana, Mount Sinai, but also people like um, Diana Redwood of the Alaska Native Tribal Health Consortium. They're doing amazing work up there. Redwood and the ANTHC have been doing a lot of work specifically on something that some people don't like to talk about or think about too much, colorectal cancer. This is a cancer that if you can detect it early is really treatable, but one of the biggest problems to detecting it is embarrassment. You know, they've got a, uh, a lot of information about uh, how to get people in this very sparsely populated state, Alaska, to doctors so they can have colonoscopies. There's a test you can do in your own home. There's all this other stuff, but they've done things where this uh, Diana Redwood, who I've never met, but who I admire immensely, she dresses up as a character called Polyp Man. There's uh, uh, this paper uh, that actually is about a 25-foot inflatable walkthrough exhibit called Nolan the Colon. You know, talk about experiences on it. All of this, I think, is meant to... I have to interrupt. I have to interrupt to just tell you that, uh, well, two things. One, when uh, Blake Eskin, our producer, handed me uh, the, the notes for this week, he talked about the prep. <laughs> and if you've ever had a colonoscopy, the prep is not a script. So we had a good laugh over that. Uh, but I just have to say the other funny thing, and it's not a funny matter, but uh, when I went looking for images online of uh, Nolan the colon, as he's known, this, uh, this large uh, inflatable colon, I hit shopping instead of images. And you can actually get this for your own home. And it comes in a, as modular units, including and includes a blower system and a storage bag and a repair kit. And literally, what? you buy these giant inflatable pieces of red uh, things that look like pieces of mattresses or pieces of, of pillows uh, or maybe an outdoor one of those sort of inflatable pools. And it's you can actually, through the Lewis County Public Health Agency, inflate your own colon at home or actually at an outside event of some kind because I think you'd want to share this with the world. But uh, barring the, 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 the funny thing here, it's actually what I found myself thinking about, Michael, was this woman who will be speaking at the Transform Conference is an epidemiologist. She no. is also somewhat of a cultural anthropologist. She works in Alaska, which, as you say, has, has barriers to entry, which have a great deal to do with the fact that it is sparsely populated and, and distances are great and people have to fly to clinics. And so that presents certain challenges right off the bat. But really what they're looking at are effective public health strategies. So dressing up in a big suit as a polyp is a way to get people's attention. It's a kind of clowny way to get people's attention. And maybe those kinds of bold gestures matter. How do you actually translate the complexities and the challenges into something actionable, and to what degree do they become catalysts when they're made visual? And, and, and that really invites design participation, I think, at a core level. Yeah, well, I think one of the things that uh, she's uh, uh, trying to do, I think, is uh, regularize the conversation about colorectal cancer and colonoscopies and stuff like that, if, uh, if being regular is 
not too much of an inadvertent um no pun intended but uh um but i think the um uh the whole point of it in a way is just to actually make it something that's easier to talk about just because uh, these kind of big bold conversation pieces are right out there in public and in your face and it's meaningless unless it's accompanied by real medicine of substance along with it part of the healthcare equation i think is really understanding the mental state of your patients and potential patients i think part of what makes the story compelling is the degree to which these people in alaska are thinking about people other than themselves right they're they're anticipating the needs of a general public one person one colonoscopy, one test at a time. And underlying right. that effort is a kind of, I don't want to say empathy because I think it's a word that's really overused, but it is at least, it's a very humane understanding of when you, when you think of public health, you think of statistics and numbers and charts and graphs. They're thinking about one person's body, one person's medical diagnosis. And that strikes me as something uh, worth talking about. There's a video that I saw a few years ago that I thought was extraordinary. It was uh, done by the Cleveland Clinic. As I understand it, it was done uh, as a conversation started for an internal conference they were having about how they could improve patient care at the Cleveland Clinic. And all they do is sort of go around and show people in the hospital, doctors, nurses, visitors, patients, and they superimpose type on them that actually describes what they're actually thinking. And it's one of those remarkable things where you realize that each person is living their own life. When you see them, you're encountering them at a moment in that life. And then um, your ability to sort of touch them in their moment that they're experiencing can make all the difference in terms of the quality of the care you're giving them or just even the quality of... It's, it's so subtle. There's, there's a scene in there where um, three people get in an elevator yeah, and the yeah. type just comes up next to them about what's going on. And there's these are these, you know, this is just a doctor in an elevator and, a, yeah. and another doctor in an elevator. And there's stuff going on with them too. And yeah, we've all been in that it, elevator. You know, it's really we've amazing. All been, yeah. It's so great. Yeah. I'm just getting goosebumps just thinking about it. I know. And, um, and, no, you know I'm, so. I'm glad you mentioned that because it really, it, it's, it's that one person at one time thing that, that you tend to think of as, I mean, designers tend to think of as a, as a virtual impossibility. You have, to re, you have to reach a demographic. You have to reach a client and his company and his earnings and his, his investors and yeah. or her and, and, make, and make it a PowerPoint presentation and sort of right. like, you know, show, make quadrants where you're just reducing people to these uh, customer types and instead somehow maintaining your ability as a human being to engage with people as human beings as well, which sounds like the most goddamn obvious thing in the world is one of those obvious things that um, somehow gets factored out. Maybe this is something that's as much the realm of art, great art, great literature, uh, great fiction writing as it is you know, science or design thinking or anything like that. In fact, it's sort of in the same category as that video, and maybe even transcending that, is um, a short story by uh, the writer Laurie Moore. I'm not sure if you ever read it. Uh, it's called People Like That Are the Only People Here. And it's just a internal monologue, basically, of a new mother who discovers that her baby has cancer. And it's tragic and horrible and funny at times, shockingly funny at times, 
incredibly sarcastic and it just has a sort of realness to it that makes it um it's just an extraordinary act of uh of sympathetic imagination that i as i understand it isn't entirely projected and fictionalized but it really has to do with an experience the writer herself had but i think the idea that um when if you're an epidemiologist or you're a healthcare professional and you're looking at all those statistics each one of those numbers uh is comprised of human beings, human beings, each one of whom are different, each one of whom will bring their own lives to the moment you encounter them. And that's true in healthcare. It's true in design. It's true in everything. It's actually, you know, it's basically summed up, I believe, in the golden rule in a way, right? Yeah, right. And there's a kind of humility underlying all of that, which interests me greatly. And recently, I don't know if you saw, there's this article making the rounds by a guy called Tristan Harris, who has the interesting title of being the former design ethicist and product philosopher at Google, which makes me think, are there no more design ethics at Google? <laughs> or did he just leave the company? Right? It's one of those oh, things that's a little hard to parse. But um, I was originally ready to vilify this guy because it sounds like one of those elevated titles like your trash collector calling himself a sanitation engineer. But I have to say, I read this thing, and there was a lot of truth in it. The article is called How Technology Hijacks People's Minds. And he does this thing that it's it's hard to dismiss because anytime anybody does this, there's a level of authenticity in, in it that I, I find quite endearing. And that is starting your argument with what might be broadly considered an origin story, right? Tristan Harris talks about the fact that as a kid, all he ever wanted to be was a magician and how being a magician is about hijacking the attention of your audience and that, in fact, this hijacking of attention is what's going on in tech companies. So, for example, if you control the menu, you control the choices. So you're not making mm, free right. choices. You're making a choice. Now, what we could liken yep. this to the stoplight um, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's example, right? Thinking. Like yep. you're not, it's every, not everything in the world. The smorgasbord of choices is extremely limited. It's one, it's two, it's three. What's not on the menu, you may ask yourself. What am, why am I being given these options and not other options? So, you know, it's, it's the question of how empowering the menu of choices is for the person providing the menu, not so powerful, perhaps, for the person at the other end of that menu. Uh, and I think that he's calling out some pretty, uh, some pretty uh, important issues that maybe we don't think about every day. You know, in, in many ways, what designers are being asked to do, this is true for designing a nutrition facts label, for designing a way to help uh, people in a sparsely populated state get colonoscopies, you know, is kind of taking masses of people using our powers of empathy or whatever other powers that we may or may not have to sort of control what they do, to make them do this and not do that. And so there's some comfort, I don't know, I always take some comfort in the fact that uh, despite everything, there's a level at which human behavior is kind of unknowable. There's a famous quote by the screenwriter uh, William Goldman, who um, uh, wrote, among other things, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid and Marathon Man and All the President's Men. And uh, he wrote a book about screenwriting in Hollywood. And, um, you know, in Hollywood, every movie starts out with people. You know, everyone wants to make a hit, and everyone's kind of predicting what will happen, and they assemble all the pieces really carefully. And uh, lots of experts say, this person will draw this audience, or this beat has to happen in the third act, or else people won't like the movie. And uh, yet there are things that, failed that seem predestined for success and vice versa and I know in the book like the whole book comes to a complete halt at the at, at one point in the beginning where he just sort of like stops provides some space and prints a single sentence um, 
really big, centered on the page, and it just simply says, nobody knows anything. And, um, and it's sort of this, he said, here's, <laughs> the basic, here's the basic principle of Hollywood. Despite what you hear, nobody knows anything. Now, I think some people do know something, but I think nobody knows everything. And there's some comfort to that. And that's actually how, um, that's what makes life interesting. And that's how we advance as a species, I would say. So... And this guy, Tristan Harris, just, he made waves, I should say, a few months ago uh, when he published something called Time Well Spent. Time Well Spent. Mm, yeah, I, like I, I know movement, that one. Good. It's yeah, a manifesto. Yeah, yeah. This struck me as a bridge too far, right? This, the, first of all, the idea that we need an ethicist from Google to tell us how to spend our time. I don't know. I was out in the garden this morning pulling weeds. I don't need him to tell me how to do that. Uh, maybe I should do more of it. But I, I find that just a little bit too, like a spiritual leader of some kind. That said, this newer thing, I think, has some quite uh, compelling uh, observations. And and he does, to come back to this idea of the heuristic, he uses interesting models from other disciplines, like the idea of the bottomless cup of coffee or the bottomless soup bowl and how you, you overeat. <laughs> and, you know, it reminded yeah. me of that great scene in, in, in Pixar's WALL-E where they've got those, like, you know, Botero-looking uh, characters, Botero yeah, was that yeah, painter yeah. who only painted yeah. obese people, you know, sitting in these motorized chairs with these enormous oversized cups just getting beverage refills mindlessly. I mean, we do have to worry about making things so efficient that it leads to a society of people who aren't considering the consequences and the morality of their actions. And I think that's where he's going with this. And I applaud efforts to have all of us having those conversations. But I don't think it should be driven by or lodged in discussions of technology. I think these are human discussions we should be having. Before we go, Jessica, um, how have you been spending your time lately? Well, uh, besides pulling weeds, uh, I am very interested to read and have basically digested everything I can uh, get on this topic. I've been reading reviews of the new book by Michael Maslin on the cartoonist Peter Arno, one of the first cartoonists to be hired by The New Yorker. There was a long article about him in Vanity Fair earlier this spring. The Wall Street Journal reviewed it. As a little, little, little kid, some of my first memories of visual culture were looking at Peter Arno books. Now, these are racy cartoons, right? These were women with, like, very unrealistic bodily proportions and uh, men leering down their uh, uh, necklines. But they were funny. He was uh, this tall, handsome, crazy jazz age guy, uh, born in 1904, died uh, in the 60s. Over 43 years with the magazine, he produced more than 50 covers, 750 cartoons. He was untouchable. Uh, but he was also uh, what might be easily referred to, I think, as a bon vivant. He had many women. He had several marriages. He dropped out of Yale, uh, barely graduated from Hotchkiss, grew up in the Upper West Side of New York, uh, was a, a musician who played in clubs, lived this life of a kind of jazz-ace New Yorker. There were fights. There were brawls. There were women. Uh, he really lived the life that he illustrated. Uh, and then there's even this one detail that I did not know, that he designed his own car. He designed an albatross. <laughs> he called it the albatross. It was a roadster. There was only one prototype ever made. Uh, I found a picture of it this morning. It was this gorgeous Gatsby-looking car. Uh, he revered Daumier. Uh, some people thought that his work was like Georges Rouault, who was a Fauvis painter. I think it's so great that a, a fellow cartoonist has taken to writing his biography. But uh, I, mostly it just reminded me of being a little girl on the floor of my father's library looking at these pictures uh, and wondering how somebody could you know, have a living drawing these, these very 
funny things. But he also was really um, kind of a real cartoonist of what we today call the 1%, you know, which was always kind he of was the, exactly the, that, imaginary, yeah. the imaginary audience of, of Harold Ross's New Yorker were, uh, you know, wealthy and cultured and worldly bon vivants. And, uh, and yet you sort of sensed, and partly because I think uh, Harold Ross, in fact, wasn't a, one, a member of the 1%. He was a, uh, you know, came from a mining town out west and sort of uh, just insinuated himself with, uh, uh, you know, the smart set in New York, but actually was an army correspondent uh, and sort of not really to the manner born at all. And, um, you know, there's a great, I don't know, cartoon that like shows uh, uh, a mustachioed kind of wealthy looking guy with a uh, boater and uh, tie and blazer with his wife who's wearing uh, a bonnet and pearls. And they've arrived at uh, what probably is like, you know, the, the, like, you know, the, the 1930s New York World's Fair. And um, there were all these people in baseball caps and Hawaiian shirts and stuff like that. And the guy's simply saying, who are these people? And sort of like the idea that, uh, um, you know, that uh, um, it's both kind of like uh, the charm, the charm of the bourgeoisie and the cluelessness of them as well, that he was really great at both celebrating and deflating at the same time. And, and boy, could he draw, too. Um, hey, um, I'd like to recommend uh, uh, the thing I've been spending time with, uh, which is pretty simple thing. It's a website that if uh, you haven't seen it yet, go check it out. It is a online publication created by the Lubalin Center, the Herb Lubalin Study Center at the Cooper Union in New York. It's called Flat File. And they do this fantastic thing where once every uh, uh, week or so, they take something from their substantial archives and just really examine it, explain the history, have really good online scans and often kind of clever animations that bring the piece to life and sort of describe who did it, where it came from, it's what it so was for. It's so beautiful. It's, it's yeah, geez, beautifully it's really, done. It's really nice. It's, it's one of the few, I, I'm, I'm a big fan of kind of, uh, as I think we've talked about before, of, un, of under-designed websites, of kind of even the new brutalism in website design. This is anything but that. This is a very, very stylish, very designed, very carefully designed website. Uh, and it's called Flatfile. You can get it at flatfile.lubalancenter1word.com. And they have a lot of Herb Lubalin work on obviously, but also they range wide. They have um, Alvin Lustig, Carl Gerstner, other designers, and if this thing keeps going, it's going to be an amazing resource for uh, designers, design students, and anyone who uh, cares about visual culture. I highly recommend it. The Observatory is a podcast from Design Observer. Our website is designobserver.com. You can find links there to things we discussed on today's show, including Nolan the Colon and the new Peter Arno book by Michael Maslin and uh, Lou Balance Center's flat file website. If you like what you heard today, please tell your friends about the observatory. Go to iTunes and rate us or leave a review. Between episodes, keep up with Design Observer on Facebook and on Twitter. You can subscribe to The Observatory on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you take your podcasts. Go to designobserver.com slash theobservatory. That's designobserver.com slash theobservatory. If you're not listening already, please tune into Design Matters with Debbie Millman. Thanks to Mayo Clinic Transform 2016 for sponsoring this episode. Teddy Blanks wrote our theme music, and our producer is Blake Eskin. Talk to you soon, Jessica. Talk to you soon, Michael. Thank you.